Well, good day again. Nice to see you all here. My name's Matt. I'm uh, an Anglicare chaplain. I'm the chaplain just up the road at Newmarch House and also at Lemon Grove Gardens. It's lovely to see you here. Um, my wife and I, with my two sons, we live at Glenmore Park, so we're locals, have been for the last oh, 13 or so years. Uh, so it's great to spend this time uh, at the beginning of the year with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and your gospel, powerful and mighty to save. Show us your great solution to our great problem. In Jesus' name, amen. The past is a problem for us. And there's two reasons for this. First, somewhere or other, as we often uh, sense, somewhere or other, you and I have sinned. We we have each one of us transgressed God's law, not just gone against our own ethics and morals, but God's objective moral standard, and neither you nor I can go back in time and undo it. There is no DeLorean for you to fix this up. The second problem is the past is a problem because unless something is done about it in the future, the past comes back to bite each one of us. The future is a problem because the past is a problem and the future is a problem because God will bring every person into judgment for their sin in the past. And I'm, of course, talking about Judgment Day. Each of us is being drawn toward this one great meeting that we must have with our maker. First, God's judgment and then either punishment or mercy with rewards. God has forgotten nothing, missed none of our works. Every thought, word and deed is before him. Jesus said himself we'll have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word we've spoken. And Paul said we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each of us may receive his or her due for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. It's true for believer or unbeliever. And so my question to you is, do you believe that you're a sinner and that your own personal judgment day is coming? Do you believe this? If you do, that's really good news, not only because it's true, because this psalm is excellent. This psalm is wonderful. This psalm is remarkable good news for you and for me. Psalm 32 brings joy to the heart, quietness to the mind and strength to the weak arms because it talks about the cover-up of God, the cover-up of God. Now, last week, we saw that Psalms one and, Psalms, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 introduced the whole book of Psalms, the Psalter. They, these two Psalms are the gateway Psalms. They invite us to come in and walk with God with the Psalms. They invite us to live the righteous life as opposed to the life that we just bias towards, that we always kind of tend towards the wicked life. Psalms 1 and 2 say, come on in and live and walk the righteous walk with God and with his Christ. Walk with his Christ, the righteous life. How do you do that? Psalm 1. You meditate on God's law day and night, God's instructions, his Torah. 
How do you do that? Psalm 2 says, take refuge in the Son, the Christ he's established on Zion. So the two ways that we're called to walk God's way is meditate on Torah, take refuge in Messiah. That's what Psalms 1 and 2 call us to do. And as we enter into the Psalter, we go through the doorway of the Psalms into the journey that God invites us to, we trip over Psalm 3. Because the heading of Psalm 3 says there's a problem. The Old Testament Christ, David, who wrote all the Psalms in Book 1 as far as we know, David, the writer of these songs in this book, is a lawbreaker and a sinner. And the occasion of Psalm 3 is... David fleeing his son Absalom. His own son has turned on him. Why? Because he turned on God. And so God has turned... Everything's gone pear-shaped for David because he, just, he decided that he would take a woman he saw um, bathing. He said, I'll have her. He took her. And now Israel is in civil war. Um, and... David fleeing Absalom and leaving Zion and Jerusalem where God's made his name to dwell, that's part of God's declared chastisement, punishment, discipline on David and for his adultery of Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. So we've walked into the door of the Psalter. We want to meditate on God's law. We want to take refuge in the Messiah in the Messiah. And at the very beginning, the Old Testament Messiah has broken the Torah. It's a problem, isn't it? That's a problem. Unsurprisingly, as we walk with David, we see in Psalm 6 that David is afraid of God's anger against him. We're not told why in Psalm 6, but he is. In Psalm 12, David observes that there's no one faithful among Adam's children. And by Psalm 14, God himself crouches down from heaven to take a good long look at us and he sees there's no one doing good, not even one. Psalms 15 and 24 still uphold God's law, God's Torah, as the only way for humans to dwell with God. And yet, as David takes a good long look at the laws in Psalm 19 where he praises the law as a wonderful blessing from God, Uh, he also makes it clear that Torah law brings knowledge of sin. He says this in Psalm 19, Who can discern his errors? Forgive me for my hidden faults. Psalm 25 brings those hidden faults out into the open, where David walks with God and yet begging God, to teach him, yet aware of his sins, even from his youth, confessing the transgression that the Torah reveals. So at the beginning of book one of the Psalms, there's only little hints of David's sin. Psalm 25, he explicitly confesses his sins. He does that again in Psalm 31. And by the end of the book one of Psalms, Psalm 38 to 41, he's confessing his sinfulness 
his transgression explicitly, asking for mercy. Well, we come to Psalm 32. David may not have written this in response to his adultery and murder, but it wouldn't be surprising if he had. Uh, David had attempted a cover-up of his sin. He pursued a detailed and cunning plan of secrecy and denial of his wrongdoing. He did it for at least a year. Um, Fortunately for him, God didn't let him get away with it. God put a stop to it, didn't allow David to continue hardening his heart and searing his conscience. In love, he sent the prophet Nathan to David to bring his dream world crashing down. David had despised God, broken the Torah with a high hand. There was no sacrifice in the Torah, in the Old Testament law, for this sin. He deserved death. And he knew it. Elsewhere in uh, the books of Samuel, we learn that David's sin had been broadcast by God far and wide. The whole nation of Israel learnt about his adultery and murder. The whole nation came to know it and grieve it. And it's his sin, David's sin, was the reason why The nation was plunged into a civil war. The Messiah had despised God's law. And moreover, it's been made known to every Bible reader for the last 3,000 years because it's in our Bibles too. We're told about it. But where David had failed in covering up his own sin, God succeeded. God covered up David's sin. God is remarkably good at covering up your sin and mine because we've given him a lot of practice. We've all made sure that God has had to forgive us because of our sin. Verses 1 and 2. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, God's cover-up does not hush everything up. It doesn't deny facts, history or reality. Um, Whatever you do, don't mention the war. It's not like that. Uh, It's not like a non-disclosure agreement. We paid you hush money, so keep your mouth shut. It's not like Admiral Nelson, who puts his telescope to his blind eye, I can't see a thing. What is this cover-up look like? Well, what God does, he takes a good long look at our sin in all its ugliness. Uh, Think of the cricket, um, which, of course, we just won. Um, You know, in the cricket, when you're looking at a wicket, you look at from behind the bowler's arm, you look at from square leg, you look at ump cam, stump cam, schnicko, all of the little things that they do. You take a good long look at it from every angle. That's what God does with our sin. He says, Yep, no doubt about it. It stinks to high heaven. It's real sin. I'm going to do something about it. I'm not going to ignore it. He doesn't ignore ignore it, tiptoe around it while holding his nose. What he does, crouches down, looks at it as it clings to us in its vileness, and then he sends his son to do something about it, to take it from us, to suffer for it, and to die under its weight. 
Now, how does God cover up our sin? He covers it by nailing it to the cross of Jesus, the New Testament Christ. It is put upon the head of the Son of God, and then that sin is buried with him in his death. Psalm 22 tells us that the Christ had his hands and feet pierced, predicting the Messiah's crucifixion. The New Testament Christ would be forsaken by his father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer to that question, why, is to cover up our sin. To cover our sin. The death of Jesus, the New Testament Christ, is a public burial of our sin. Our sin was not hushed up. In fact, God wants us to concentrate on it, pay attention to it, see how serious our transgression is and wants us to understand the great cost in forgiving it. But God still performs the cover-up. He buries our sin with his son who knew no sin but became sin for us. He doesn't hide our sin from other people either. That's what David sought to do. And God, as a result, publicised it all the more loudly for the attempt. God must hide our sin from himself, from his own sight. God hides our sin not from other people, but miraculously he hides it from himself. And so the blessedness promised in Psalm 1, blessed is the one who meditates on the law of the Lord, And the blessing of Psalm 2, blessed is the one who takes refuge in the Messiah, is not cancelled because Psalm 32 tells us, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. God's blessings are not nullified by our transgressions of the Torah or by the Christ, the Old Testament Christ's transgression. The cover-up of God in Psalm 32 is how God's blessings can come to us despite our transgressions. Believers who walk with God, who've entered into relationship, fellowship, friendship with God, entered into that friendship with God, each one has sinned and fallen short of God's glory. They sin along the way, like David, like Peter, like Paul. And God provides forgiveness for us so that we do not despair along the way after we've started our walk with him. David is wonderfully excited and relieved at the news of God's cover-up. He sings about it. He writes a song about it. He's not going to hush up what God has covered up, his sin. He wants... David originally wanted to hush up his sin. That was a mistake. So now he isn't going to add sin to sin by hushing up the forgiveness of his sins. He's going to announce the forgiveness of his sins and neither should you nor I. If your sins have been forgiven, dear friends, talk to others about it. And talking to others about your forgiveness is evangelism. That's what evangelism is. Telling people that there is forgiveness of sins, that I believe in forgiveness of sins and that others can share in that blessedness. Well, David experienced suffering when he tried to keep his sins secret. Verses 3 and 4. 
When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. David describes what we might call psychosomatic sufferings. That is, God has laid his hands of suffering on David as a discipline, as a chastisement. And thankfully, David has had the pain of an accusing conscience. His effort to silence his conscience without forgiveness cost David all his strength. The sufferings that David endured served as an alarm, warning us of God's displeasure displeasure at his sin. David's conscience, God's deputy in the court of the mind, has acted as judge, jury and executioner, standing over David, convicting and punishing him with emotional pain, physical lethargy. Suppressing the truth is hard work. It's painful. Denial is costly, and God didn't let David get away with it. He didn't let David have peace of mind while he caressed and nurtured his sin. And it's futile to do so. David's resistance, his stubborn silence, was like a mule. He was like a mule, stubborn, standing where he was in his sin and not moving, stupidly intensifying his suffering like a donkey. And the turning point came when David stopped denying reality. The way to relief was in verse 5. Then I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not, did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. His son Solomon says, He who conceals his sins does not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them finds mercy. That's what David did. He stopped the denial. He admitted to God what he had done, not as if God needed to be told, but he admitted to God. God pardoned him, set him free from his sin, and David acknowledged the truth about himself. The truth set him free. Now, David's forgiveness is all the more remarkable because in the case, if it was, uh, if, if, the orig- if the context of this was the sin that David committed with Uriah and Bathsheba, David could not depend on the Old Testament sacrifices. His sin against Uriah and Bathsheba was one with a high hand, a deliberate sin for which the Levitical sacrifices offered no Redemption offered no sacrifice. There was no sacrifice for this. It was a death sentence. That's why David says, that man deserves to die. And Nathan says, you are the man. Friends, we've got even more reason to confess our sin to God because we have a mediator, an advocate, a high priest in heaven. The New Testament Christ, Jesus Christ, He's the proof that God is willing and able to forgive all our sin. The thing we're called to do is confess it and repent of it. Think about those wonderful words of assurance in John's first letter. I'll read them for you. This is what the Apostle John, the Apostle of Love, says. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just 
and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defence, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Dear friends, there's no need to suffer under the burden of guilt. Uh, Jesus Christ has died and risen again, and he wants you and I to serve him, as the prayer book says, with a quiet mind, with a quiet mind, relieved, freed from sin, rejoicing in his blessedness. That's why David is so urgent. He wasted a lot of time, wasted a whole year trying to press down this guilt and cover over his sin. And so he's urgent in verse 6, Therefore let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. What should we do when we find ourselves in sin? Go to the fridge? Go to the television? Turn up the music? Drown the pain in some pursuit? No. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God and prayer in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Psalm 32 is a mascal, a mascal. Uh, that is, it's a wisdom psalm. It's teaching wisdom. David is teaching us. He's testifying to us by sharing his experience. He bids us to learn from his, from his painful experience about how to deal with our guilt and sin now before the great day of judgment. Psalm 32 doesn't explain how, how God can cover over our sin and still remain just. David joyfully accepted this wonderful blessedness, this great forgiveness. He'll not add sin to sin by hushing it up. Everyone must know about it, and that's why we have Psalm 32. But Psalm 32 doesn't tell us how God can cover over sin in such, uh, and, and still be just. The New Testament, however, does. The New Testament tells us that God does this through the offering of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as a propitiation, as a wrath-averring sacrifice, a sacrifice that turns away God's wrath from us by removing, by expiating our sin. And the Apostle Paul, as was read for us, the Apostle Paul uses Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, in Romans chapter 4. David's experience in Psalm 32 supports the Apostle Paul's wonderful teaching of justification by faith apart from works of the law. A person is justified by faith apart from good works, the good works that the law requires. And Paul uses the examples of Abraham and David. God said to Abraham, 
God said about Abraham, I should say, Abraham believed God, trusted God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's Genesis 15.6. David then speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God um, credits righteousness apart from works. That's Psalm 32. So there's a link between Genesis 15.6 and Psalm 32, and it's this word to credit, to credit. God uh, does not credit sin. He credits righteousness, this idea of reckoning, planning, crediting, imputing. It's a word about thinking. And that's the reason why Paul uses Psalm 32 and Genesis 15.6 to explain about this idea, that word for crediting. God has to think differently about you and me. If we're not righteous, God has to think differently about us so that we might be considered righteous. If we've sinned, God has to think differently about us so that he might not impute our sin to us. He might not credit our sin to us. He might not count our sin to us. And the great news of the gospel, dear friends, is that God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's transgressions against them. Uh, Psalm 32 and and King David was an example of that. God is treating an ungodly sinner, King David, as if he is righteous, when in fact, from another perspective, he's not. And he's admitted it. How can God do this and still remain just? He does it by publicly placing the sins that he has committed, that we have committed, the sins that David committed, the sins that Abraham committed, he's placed them on the head of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's become the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. Christ gave his life as a ransom for many. He can do this because the Lord Jesus has obeyed or has taken the penalty of the law. The law says the soul that sins shall die. Jesus died. He did it for you and me. He didn't have to do it. He didn't owe his death because of his sin. He never sinned. And Jesus died. The law also says the one who does these things shall live. The one who obeys the Old Testament law will live by them. And Christ fulfilled the precept of his law of the law by his sinless and obedient life. He always loved God with his whole heart, always loved his neighbour as himself. And because he had always obeyed God, the one who does these things will live by them. Did Jesus stay dead? He did not. Death could not hold him down. He received the righteousness of the law because he kept it and he rose again. The law promised life to its doer. Jesus did the law so death could not hold him down. Jesus' resurrection was his vindication and he shares this wonderful righteousness with us. By Jesus' death and vindicating resurrection, he justifies justifies and saves covers over the sin and imputes righteousness too. 
every person who puts their trust in him. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. That is the wonderful news of the gospel. By the obedience of the one man, Jesus Christ, the gift of righteousness flows to many. So, dear friends, Psalm 32 is a wonderful reminder of the gospel, of Jesus, of his death and resurrection. The Messiah has fulfilled the Torah. Tell others about it, this blessed cover-up, that they can join you in the safe place of trusting Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus. Thank you for his death on the cross, his resurrection for us. Thank you that we, like King David, must come to you as beggars, sinners, needing forgiveness and being covered over, having our sins covered by your mercy and grace. And thank you that you have provided this for us through Christ. Help each one of us entrust ourselves to him, to trust in him and to rejoice in the forgiveness that you have provided for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.